This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Started in 2008, Big Think is a kind of online think tank of big ideas from some of the most creative thinkers on the planet. On the Think Again podcast, we revisit these ideas in new and unpredictable ways. Our producers surprise me and my guests with short interview clips from Big Think's archives, ideas that we didn't necessarily come here expecting to discuss. I am very, very, very happy to be here today with internationally best-selling author, speaker, and passionate advocate for reason and science as against superstition, Richard Dawkins. From 1995 to 2008, Richard Dawkins was the Charles Simoni Professor of the Public Understanding of Science at Oxford University. Among his many books are The Selfish Gene, The God Delusion, and his two-part autobiography, An Appetite for Wonder and A Brief Candle in the Dark. His latest, which we'll be talking about today, is a collection of essays, stories, and speeches called Science in the Soul, spanning many decades and the major themes of Richard's work. Welcome to Think Again, Richard. Thank you. So I was, I was delighted. First of all, I found much that was delightful in your collection. Um, but I was, I was very especially delighted by the fact that you are a big P.G. Woodhouse fan. Yes. And by your imitation or, I don't know, take on the Jeeves and, Jeeves and Wooster stories. That was, that was beautifully done. Well, thank you. It is a difficult thing to do. It's notoriously hard, actually, <laughs> to parody P.G. Woodhouse. I had Jeeves explaining atheism right. to Bertie and uh, explaining evolution to Bertie. Yeah, I thought it was really convincing. There was not a wrong note. I've read a fair amount of those stories, uh, you know, a good Well, I must say, I, I asked Stephen Fry, who you may know played yes. Jeeves in the in television series, and he said, very much in the proper vein. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, and also I learned that you are a big Douglas Adams nerd, just as yes, I am, so yes. that made me very yeah. happy as well. Yeah. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy for anyone who hasn't had the pleasure. So there are many, you know, many, many places we could start here. Um, I guess I want to ask you, you know, at some point, it seems to me, so I have a sort of fantastical idea, you know, I think it's a sort of romantic idea of the old, you know, kind of Oxbridge world where one, you know, sits around happily discussing ideas and among people who may disagree with one, but, you know, everyone is sort of together in the co-creation of knowledge and so on. At, at some point, you seem to have made a conscious decision that there was a fight you needed to have in the world. Like that basically you, you know, you, you couldn't have the luxury in a sense of just kind of sitting back only and delighting in knowledge, but that you had to, you had to engage in a sort of intellectual battle with forces that I think you saw as threatening 
science and reason, yes? Well, there are plenty of precedents for that in the Oxbridge world. I mean, you've got it right in some ways. <laughs> but, um, of course, I'm by no means the first, and, and I, I'm, I'm rather proud to say that, that my predecessors and contemporaries in Oxford and Cambridge are not, sh they don't really hide in ivory towers. I mean, they, they traditionally always, always have come out. Yes, I mean, I, I'm passionate about science. I'm passionate about scientific truth. And uh, I, I think there is such a thing as scientific truth. And I think that it's science's business and science's skill, indeed, to find it. Right. Science has developed methods over the centuries to find out what's true and to avoid being biased by emotion. Of course, individual scientists have emotions. We, we are human beings. But we have a method which deliberately sets out to minimize those emotions and those feelings and concentrate on truth. To the point where, for example, in medical research, the double-blind trial right. is very important because with the best will in the world, a scientist trying to, uh, trying to look at the evidence, trying to record the facts, for example, of which patients get better, the ones with the control dose or the ones with the experimental dose of some new drug. Right. It's very easy to let subjective judgment cloud your diagnosis of whether a patient's got better or not. And so the double-blind trial completely guards against that by the doctor not knowing which patients have had the, the drug, which patients have had the control. Sure. The nurse looking after the patients don't know. Nobody knows. Right. It's all coded in some number which is only revealed when the experiment is over. You're not allowed to even look right. at how the experiment's going until it's finished. So in a sense, like science, science anticipated the human, you know, the sort of cognitive biases yes. that, so like, science, science admits that and, scientists yeah. are human and that, and that they have biases. I mean, it can, the bias can go the other way. A really, really scrupulous scientist might be biased against a hypothesis. Right. Um, and so you have to guard against any kind of bias, any, any kind of prejudgment of the, of, of the matter. Well, the double-blind trial is a, a step in the right direction, and it is it stands for the whole principle of the scientific method as being a way of shutting out emotions and right. bi biasing in favor of the confirmation bias. Now, you write about this, and I can't recall whether it was Hume. I'm afraid my, my education is failing me here. But when, when it comes to um, the, the phrase, you can't get an ought from an is, right? It was so Hume, yes. It's Hume. So yes. science is very good at identifying ises, right, in, yes. the, in the sense that, like, this seems to absolutely be the case, uh, and we've not disproved it yet, and, and yeah. everyone seems to agree. But when it comes to, as you write in the book, our not behaving like evolution or nature, red in tooth and claw, like our, our making decisions about how to treat each other and how to live in the world, you know, uh, science can't, can't do that. So the question is, or at least not classical science, but you seem to be in favor of <laughs> systems of values, you know, human systems of values that are not derived from hard science. How does one derive those? Well, yes, I mean, yeah. it, it, it's perfectly true that, uh, that I have actually argued somewhat paradoxically that although Darwinian natural selection is the correct truth about how we got here, right. it should very much not govern the way we organize our lives and our politics and our social life and nature read in tooth and claw, although Tennyson used it before Darwin, uh, um, it, it, it very much does describe the way natural selection is. A, a politics governed by 
natural selection would be very nasty indeed. It would be a kind of Thatcherism. I, I, yeah, I feel, that, I feel that the American, the current American regime is a little bit in that direction. Well, I fear so. Yeah. And um, in the turn of the century, the, the 1920th century, the, the social Darwinists actually thought that they, they could use Darwinism to derive right. an ought from an is, and that was terrible. It, it climaxed in, in, in fascism. Well, I mean, I'd go further to say that I think that, yeah, I feel that the human population is, if not evenly split, at least split on this question as to whether one ought to live in turn, you know, as if everyone is out to get you. Yes. Or not. <laughs> yes. Well, that I, uh, that's that's I suppose is 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 right. Yes. Um, so you you asked me yeah. how how we should derive right. our morals. Right. I think we should derive our morals by intelligent design. Okay. I think we should uh, sit down together and design the kind of society we want to live in, right. rather than let nature take its course. If you, if you let na nature take its course, it's not very nice. Um, so, uh, of course, I'm an opponent of intelligent design as a theory for how we got here. Right. We got here by natural selection. I'm in favor of intelligent design as a method of deciding how we want to live, what we should regard as good, what we should regard as bad. Right. So, I mean, it gets slippery then, but like, what, you know, what is the epistemology by which we know whether our design is intelligent? Like, is it just sort of, you know, consensus? Yeah, or? we have to have some sort of criterion. And I think that avoidance of suffering, which was Jeremy Bentham's um, contribution, one of his contributions, that's a pretty good criterion. Right, right. For example, in the abortion debate, which is obviously a very big moral debate in many people's minds, of course. an embryo which is too young to feel anything, an embryo which has no nervous system, right. um, cannot suffer. And therefore, to talk about it as having the same moral rights as an adult human or even an adult cow right. um, is violates the principle that what matters is suffering. suffering. I mean, in that case, I suppose people who are in favor, I mean, aside from the religious arguments, people who might be in favor of banning abortion or not, or who, who are against abortion, might be thinking in terms of the, like, future rights of the supposed human. That's right, know, like they that. are. Uh, and <laughs> and I, I have very little sympathy for that. Because okay. if, you, if you take future rights into consideration, I mean, it's the thing about, you know, an acorn is not an oak tree. And, um, right. In, in any case, great majority of concept, not a majority of, of conceptuses is aborted anyway before you know they even exist. And so, right. yeah. and um, pe people who think, you know, the soul enters the body at the moment of conception, like Roman Catholics do, you can tease them by sure. pointing to identical twins, which, which uh, the, 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 it splits after conception. Which right. twin got the soul? Right, 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 which, right. Which twin is the zombie? You talk to a pair of identical twins and they clearly both think they've got a soul. Of course, nobody has a soul in the in the sense of an immortal soul, but it, it's an, it's an, I mean, there's kind of absolutist morality which says sure. human life is sacred, and that's that. Right. Uh, um, that that is not a good way to design your morality. And that's about to bring me to the question of animals, which you ra you know you raise several times in the book. But I, I'm I'm thinking, and I'm not sure I'm disagreeing with you here, but I'm thinking that. Education, right, which, which is, I'm sure, a value of yours as well. When we plan education and we decide what is good in education and we allocate funds to education, we are making decisions on behalf of the future selves of these children and also our society. So we are determining a good from 
the future rights of people. Yes, I mean one of one of the things that economists talk about is discounting the future and the, and and how much how much you value present good as opposed to to future good. And right. I, I think one of the things that we've progressed in uh, as the better angels of our nature, to quote Stephen Pinker, Pinker. But one of the things that we have progressed in is increasing the distance into the future that we that we value. We now do value future generations. We, we value centuries ahead. We, we, we worry about climate change right. because the disasters that are going to happen will affect our children and grandchildren. So then by logic, and I'm sort of being a devil's advocate here because I'm not an opponent of abortion per se, like why wouldn't we then extend that right to the potential adult? Yeah. If, you, of, if you, you take know, that line, then, yeah. then you would have to say that any act that you Anything you do that, that prevents a new human life coming into existence mm, would such be Such as not having a hundred children or... Yes, right. such as, such as re refraining from sexual intercourse <laughs> right, right. without a contraception. <laughs> I mean, this comes up in the, the, the great Beethoven fallacy, which you've probably heard of, where um, somebody tell, tells a story, um, a doctor to another doctor. I had a patient, a, a woman who had, had already had seven children. One was born blind, one was born deaf, one was born mentally deficient, one was all, all sorts of terrible things. Right. And she was pregnant with, with another child. What, you know, might, might you advise abortion? And the other doctor says, well, yes, I would. Congratulations, you've just killed Beethoven. Okay. <laughs> well, that's a silly argument because right. it implies that, as I said, anything that, I mean, you could just as well say I've killed Beethoven by, by not having intercourse now which might have produced a, a genius musician. Right, right, right. Um, you cannot argue like that. Right. It, is also, it, it also brings to mind the, the bit in Monty Python's The Meaning of Life, uh, every sperm is every sacred. Every sperm is sacred. Every yeah. sperm is sacred. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but by the way, but the, the great Beethoven fallacy is, is even worse because Beethoven was the eldest child, not the, not the eighth <laughs> child. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so uh, another argument that I found very compelling in your book, this is this essay in a section that is titled something like Living in the Real World. It's about dogs and fireworks, right? And you argue basically by all available scientific means that we have, it, it seems that dogs are totally tortured by the noise of Fireworks. Not just or, dogs. I mean, and, probably almost any animal. Right. I mean, um, wild animals, um, cats, dogs, cattle, horses, badgers, weasels, right. muntjacs. Um, uh, it, it must be totally terrifying. It obviously is, and there's good veterinary evidence for this. And we do this in, in Britain. We do it on the fifth of, of November, which is rather Guy Fox Day, macabre celebration of a failed Catholic plot to blow up Parliament right. in the seventeenth century. And here you do it on the 4th of July and, and so on. And you, were, um, so you pointed out that the, the fireworks have started to sort of metastasize on yeah, either yeah, side right, of yes. that, that, those um, holidays. Um, they, they, they do <laughs> metastasize. So Guy Fawkes sort of starts about two weeks before and goes on for a couple of weeks afterwards. Right. And I expect the 4th of July does as well. Silent fireworks, so fireworks that don't make these colossal bangs are right. available. The two arguments against my killjoy approach <laughs> to fireworks are one, that it's an infringement of personal liberty, and two, that who cares about animals anyway? Right. Well, the infringement of personal liberty, it's all very well to say that your garden, your backyard is your own, but of course, the noise of fireworks extends 
far and wide outside your backyard. Right. So, so you're, you are infringing other people's personal liberty as well as to not to mention non-human animals. And who cares about animals anyway? Well, I do, and anybody should, because they are capable of suffering. They're capable of fear, capable of panic. Um, and I think most of, I think, I think the vast majority of people probably do. I also think that many people who enjoy noisy fireworks care very much about animals and yes. maybe even own dogs. Yeah. Yes. And so your argument becomes difficult to refute once you think about it in that way. Yes. Um, so I don't want to be too much of a killjoy. <laughs> I mean, I actually love fireworks, but I do think that they might be made quiet. In Northern Ireland, uh, during the Troubles, fireworks right. were actually banned because the police couldn't, um, couldn't um, tell the difference between a firework and a bomb. Right. And um, so only, only recently have fireworks been permitted. I would imagine they're very scary also for people suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Indeed they disorder. are, I mean, that's right. <laughs> um, I've even see, received letters from people from, from who, who fought in wars right. who suffer from exactly the same thing as First World War shell shock. And this speaks to sort of a larger theme that comes up several times in your book. Um, you talk about the Dr. Doolittle stories that, that you enjoyed um, as, a, as a child, which I don't, I don't know if I've ever read, and it's quite possibly because they were deemed racist. As well, yes, out. I mean, I, I, I love Dr. Doolittle as a child. I, I, I like it par partly because he's not speciesist. I mean, partly he, he, he right. taught me to treat non-human animals as having the same kind of morals status as humans, albeit perhaps less. Also, he reminds me of Darwin. I mean, the, the, young, <laughs> the young Darwin, the great naturalist, the young man traveling to in foreign parts, there's a lot in common right. between the young Darwin and Dr. Doolittle, uh, dated about the same time, early 19th century. Oh, interesting. Um, and he was a great naturalist, he was a, he was a skeptic, um, and it's good science fiction in a way, because good science fiction only manipulates one variable at a time. You don't, it doesn't mess, it doesn't invoke the supernatural. Right. So Dr. Doolittle's one trick, so to speak, was that he could talk to non-human animals. Right. Everything else from that follows. So he, he was able to confound human enemies who didn't, who thought he was supernatural, but actually all he was doing was getting non-human animals to tell him things that other they couldn't understand. And it raises a question for me that I wanted to ask you. Several months ago, my wife and I sort of, I don't know, spontaneously, it must have been the culmination of some long thinking on our part, but we decided to become pescatarian because we don't like factory farms very much. Um, but in doing so, we made a decision, which was that, you know, we can't live without sushi, right? Um, and so we made a decision that fish is the suffering of fish. And I actually am uncomfortable about octopuses because they're quite intelligent. But that because of their sort of lack of intelligence on the, or as far as we can determine, we were okay with the suffering of fish. Does that seem like nonsense to it, you? Well, it, it's, Im <laughs> it, 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 it's impossible to know. Um, I mean, strictly speaking, it's impossible to know it, for, for me to know even whether you have feelings. I mean, I, right. I generalize from the fact that I, I do and the, and the fact that we, you and I look pretty much alike and we've come into the world in the same way and have the same history. We have the same kind of brain nervous system. So I very, very strongly believe that other, other humans can feel the same way I do. Right. And it's a generalization of that argument that says that other mammals can. Fish are a bit more different. Uh, so it, it's, it's an open question, and mm. uh, we, don't, we don't know. Do you think it is 
probabilistically foolish to presume that they do not have consciousness, anything like like yeah, reflective yeah, consciousness? We, we, don't, we just, we we just, just don't, don't know. know. I mean, one of the things I said in the introduction to <laughs> Science in the Soul is, you know, did, did consciousness gradually evolve? Is there a sort of rudimentary consciousness in a worm and a bit more consciousness in a fish and right. a bit more in a monkey and so on? I think that's plausible. I think that's probably true. Mm. Um, when it comes to feeling pain, when you think about what pain is for, biologically speaking, pain is a warning right. to the animal not to repeat what it's just done. Yeah. Whatever you did just now which led to pain, next time you do it might lead to death. There's no particular reason to think that, say, a dog or a cow has any less reason to feel pain for that reason than a human. Sure. Pain doesn't feel like something you need a great intellect for. No reason to think that a stupid person, a Sarah Palin, say, feels less pain than a clever person like an Einstein. Right. Um, just because Einstein's clever and she's stupid. And similarly, there's no reason to suppose that a dog or a cow, or maybe a fish, we don't know, can't feel pain because that's what pain's for. Right. And because pain sort of seems like a fairly primitive sort of thing that doesn't need an intellect for, you can even go further and suggest that a clever animal, an intelligent animal, might actually need less pain in order to deter it from repeating whatever it's just done. Right. An animal that hasn't got a great intellect may need a lot of pain in order to say, don't do that again. Right, um, so that maybe pain is in fact more in intense. It's in possible that pain is even more intense, yes. Uh, I don't know how, I wouldn't want to push that argument too far, <laughs> but at least I think we might, we might say that, that at least there's no reason to suppose that, that they feel less pain. So then the question becomes whether, you know, reflective con reflexive consciousness, the sense that like, I am feeling pain and I don't like it and I, yes. I, you know, et cetera, makes a difference in terms of whether we consider it okay to inflict yes. pain or not. I mean, uh, my first wife, Marian Stamp Dawkins, wrote a book on animal suffering mm -hmm. and she did a lot of it. She's the leading researcher in the field, in fact, mm -hmm. and she did a lot of, of research trying to let animals, as it were, as she calls it, vote with their feet mm. on, on what, what they like and what they don't like. And for example, she worked on battery hens, and we all think it's intolerable that hens should be kept in tiny little, little cages. Right. She actually tried to ask the hens by allowing them a choice, a sort of standard psychological choice in a sort of Y maze, T maze sort of thing. Turn, turn left and you end up in a battery hen, in a battery cage. Turn right and you end up in an open barnyard. Mm. Which, which we think would be much nicer. Well, they do prefer the barnyard to the, to the battery cage, okay. but not all that much. Okay, um, <laughs> they don't exhibit so a strong she tried. She tried um, titrating um, one choice against another. So if you, if you turn left and get into the battery cage, but you get some nice food, and turn right and get into the barnyard, but you don't, then oh, it's not so obvious that... that, that um, oh, so so you, you, you can devise methods to, to, um, to measure um, animal suffering and animal and their preference. preferences. Of, of course, it's always possible that, <laughs> and then this gets us into dangerous territory too, of course, but it's always possible that they're stupid enough that they don't know what's good for them. Well, no, they, at least they're clever enough that they could consistently make, make the, the, the same choice. So, right. so they, can, they can learn. I think the only message from that, ex that kind of experiment is don't automatically put yourself in the position and say, well, I wouldn't like it, therefore, Therefore, they don't like it. Right. right um, but right. my more general argument that 
arguing from what pain is for mm -hmm. suggests that we should exercise some sort of giving them the benefit of the doubt, at least. There is one other point, which is that pain, I think, is it, to me, it's fairly clear we should give them the benefit of the doubt. But other things like fear, I think it's probably reasonable to suspect that a human intellect enables you to, to fear more. You know the consequences. You can, mm. you can imagine what will happen in certain circumstances. I mean, hu humans are aware of, of death, for example. Right, right. And it's, it doesn't seem obvious that non-human animals are. And so you could make a, a separate argument that doesn't, not about physical pain, Right. but about fear, about dread, right. uh, and, and a similar argument about bereavement. Um, he, right, the other chickens that's missing right. their I mean, human, Humans really do feel intense grief at the loss of a loved one. That's not to say that non-human animals don't feel intense grief, but I, at least I can't make a general argument why they should. Right. Um, there's some evidence that elephants do, right. which is interesting and persuasive. Uh, but my general argument about physical pain doesn't necessarily apply to dread and doesn't necessarily apply to bereavement. Right, right. So it's a question of whether and wh whether and to what extent we're okay with inflicting physical pain on other things. If, if we, uh, I if think we, we should be very, very reluctant to inflict physical pain on anything that can feel it or anything that might be able to feel it. Yeah. Are you a vegetarian? I'm struggling towards being a vegetarian <laughs> like you. Uh, I, I am a vegetarian at, at home. Yeah, uh, and I, I I have yet to cross the barrier into when I go out to dinner, mm. telling my host, um, etc. Yeah, I mean I am sympathetic also to these movements of you know the sort of like ethical farming movements where they are trying to inflict I'm as very sympathetic to that pain as possible yes, on yes. the animals, um, but it's very hard you know to tell where your meat is coming from at every moment and yes. so on. Um, so. Admittedly, um, given that I've read a lot of your work and you've got quite an impressive body of it, I was excited and, and also a little intimidated to meet you. And I have a group on the internet that talks about the ideas in this podcast. And some of those folks asked me whether there was anyone in your life, you know, in your adult career, that you felt that way about, that you know, that you were, you know, particularly like anxious or excited or nervous to meet or encounter or know. Um, and if the answer is no, the answer well, is no. Well, yes. I mean, um, I suppose my doctoral supervisor, Nico Tinbergen, <laughs> ended up getting a Nobel Prize. Um, when I first met him, I was con in considerable awe. Uh, Peter Medowar, so Peter Medowar, yes. great medical scientist, Nobel Prize winner, mm. polymath, S brilliant essayist. Uh, I was in awe of him when I met him. I met him a few times right. before he died. and. Um, Probably a few more like that, yes. Mm. You talk also about your friend Christopher Hitchens. Yes. Your, your, um, the final, I think it's the final bit in the book is a, a speech it's the last. Gave, the yeah. last essay in the book is a speech, speech that I made in his presence very shortly before he died. Uh, and I was there, I was presenting him with the Richard Dawkins Award, which is given annually by one of the American uh, atheist societies, the um, um, the American Atheist Alliance. And um, the day before that, I had interviewed him for New Statesman magazine, it's a British right. magazine, that I was guest editor of for that, for the, for the Christmas issue one year. So I saw a lot of him th that weekend, and uh, on two successive days, um, I 
made a speech in his honor, uh, and that speech is reproduced, or most of it is reproduced as the last chapter in Science in the Soul. Right. I ended up um, presenting him with the, with the award, and then he very valiantly, because he was, his voice was going at that point, he went on for about an hour answering questions. It was the most wonderful performance. His, he had lost nothing of his guts and courage and sheer heroism although his voice wasn't as strong as it had been that glorious Richard Burton-like voice. <laughs> yes, um, yes, it And was. the book is dedicated to him, and so I added a little afterword at the very end of the book, saying something like, in the only sense of the word soul that makes any sense, the soul of Christopher Hitchens is among the immortals. Mm. He, like you, is someone who in his intellectual life was not afraid to take positions that ended up at times with political misunderstanding or backlash or whatever. I wonder if you could speak maybe a little bit about that sort of Yes, he was a, he was a hero. I disagreed with him on some things. I disagreed with him on the Iraq war. Mm. I disagreed with him on abortion. He was in favor of the Iraq war? I did not yes, he was, read that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, on, I mean, on, on grounds that he'd been to Iraq on many occasions and, and he knew how awful Saddam Hussein was. He mm. certainly wasn't, didn't think that weapons of mass destruction were a good reason for going to war. He just wanted to kill Saddam Hussein. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, and he was, not, he was not sympathetic to or the arguments that like Western interventionism often leads he thought, to I, I, I mean, I can't speak for him, but, yeah, yeah. Uh, but, 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 uh, but I mean, so it's very, very likely that, that he would have agreed if he saw the mess the Middle East is in now that he would, would change his mind. But, but at the time he was in favor because mm. it meant getting rid of Saddam Hussein. Gotcha. Um, but he was a valiant hero. He, he went to war zones. He was, he was physically courageous, a thing that I've never done. He was a superb orator. I think the most wonderful orator I ever heard, probably. Yes, I've, um, yes. And he did it by sheer eloquence. He didn't shout, he didn't yell. There's some people who think that great oratory is a matter of shouting loud because <laughs> it isn't that. Incredible um, memory as in, well. In extraordinary mean, um, resource of, of background knowledge, of quotations yeah, yeah, of history. Yeah. And, and of course he was much misunderstood and, and at least I have that in common with him. Part of the problem is that we both try to speak clearly and clarity is sometimes thought to be, sometimes found to be threatening. Unkind or and, something. Yes, unkind. Yeah. One of the problems I find is that I use words precisely. Sometimes people hear what they want to hear rather than what I actually say. Right. For example, I've used the word ignorant, mm. describing uh, people who don't believe in evolution as either ignorant, stupid, or insane. That sounds like an insult, but it's actually a factual statement, because ignorance is by far the main reason. Ignorance is no crime. We're all ignorant of something. Right. We're all ignorant of most things, actually. So to describe somebody as ignorant literally means they don't know. Yes. No, people, people use ignorant as a synonym for They use stupid. it as, an, yeah. as, a, as, a, as a synonym for, for stupid, which is not what I intended, intended, but because they take it that way, they think I've insulted them. I haven't. I've simply said, you are as ignorant of biology as I am ignorant of baseball. Of course, I mean, these get at the, I don't know, intellectual arguments that you've ended up in often come down to people's deeply held beliefs and their belief in their desire that their own belief should be a sufficient 
yeah. criterion for yeah. truth or whatever. Yes. People yeah. are not their beliefs. <laughs> People's beliefs should not be based upon emotion. They should be based on evidence. And you should, you know, be able to argue about beliefs without it necessarily being ad hominem, you know. Exactly. Right, right. I agree. Yes. Christopher Hitchens said, you say you're offended by what I've just said. I'm still waiting to hear your argument. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. So I think at this, I think this is a good place for us to shift to the surprise clips. Let's see what the videos are that they've yes. chosen. Get paid to be a good human being. That's the future AI will deliver, uh, is the title of this video. Joshua Bach, cognitive scientist. Or Joshua, sorry, Joshua. I think the question of whether we should be afraid of strong AI taking over and squashing us like bugs because it doesn't need us for the things that it's doing is exactly the same question uh, as if, if we should be afraid of big corporations taking over and squashing us like bugs. Because big corporations are already agents. They are already intelligent agents in some sense. They're not sentient. They borrow humans right now for their decision making, but they do have goals of their own that are different from the goals of the humans that they employ. They usually live longer and they're much more powerful than people. And it's very hard for a person to do anything against a corporation. Usually if you want to fight a corporation, you have to become some major organization or corporation or nation state yourself. So in some sense, um, the agency of an AI is going to be the agency of the system that builds it, that employs it. And of course, most of the AIs that we are going to build will not be little Roombas that clean your floors but it's going to be very intelligent systems, corporations, for instance, that will perform exactly according to the logic of these systems. If so, if we want to have these systems uh, built in such a way that they treat us nicely, we have to start right now. And it seems to be a very hard problem to do so. Um, the job loss because of automation has several aspects. On the, I think the most obvious thing that we should be seeing is if our jobs can be done by machines, that's a very, very good thing. It's not a bug, it's a feature. I wonder if there's a, a way that you'd like to, to begin getting I'm, into this. I'm familiar with the, 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 with the question, I'm often asked it, whether, whether we should worry about, about robots taking over. Yeah. Uh, what I hadn't heard before is this very interesting, it's a very good example of lateral thinking where somebody makes a, but just what intellectuals should do is make a point seen in a different way. Right. And his, his point that corporations already are agents um, which are bigger than we are yeah. uh, is an excellent point and, and it's just the kind of point I like to make uh, and, and I, I hope make several times in Science in the Soul where you just you, you hadn't thought of thinking it in, of, of it in, in that way before and so I shall take that away with me um, as, as being a very good piece of, of lateral thinking. <laughs> I hadn't, yeah, I hadn't <coughs> thought of that either and it seems to me that the only difference there is that He's absolutely right. I, I think that the concern about AI that I hear sometimes is that when artificial general intelligence exists, that is to say when the machines are capable of quote-unquote independent thought, whatever that might mean, um, and then are able to like build more, dis more machines and make decisions on their own and so on, that they might either no longer be under the control of whatever sort of morality we've programmed into them or be able to reprogram themselves in whatever way that they wish. And that seems a little different from a company. I mean, a company does have an independent momentum, but sort of humans can always 
rein it in, well, supposedly. Well, you say humans can always rein it in, but, <laughs> but I'm, I'm not sure that's true. I'm not saying we're good at it. No, um, <laughs> but no, it, 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 is a, it is a worry, and, and, and I think lots of very, very clever, good people are worried about it. I mean, Elon Musk and Stephen Hawking, I think. Nick Bostrom at yes. your own um, Oxford. Yeah. Uh, I suppose it's possible to make the case that the world would be a better place without us. And, and we're not making a very good job of running the world. <laughs> right. And, and reverting to our earlier discussion about suffering, hmm. will robots be capable of suffering? I, I think that they, they must in principle be, be, because there's nothing in our brains that isn't physics. So, so this, it must be in principle possible that right. anything we can do, like suffer, like love, um, they must in principle be capable of doing, because we may not build that into them. Yeah, I mean, if we've built into them the capability of thinking of themselves as independent beings, or if they acquire that somehow through self-replication, then presumably they will also be afraid of death or not Yes, having the plug pulled out of the wall. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. The, these are profoundly difficult philosophical questions, and and, uh, and so it's good news for philosophy departments. They'll they'll be in business maybe for. I many guess that's right. Yes, I guess that's right. It's, it's not it's not entirely clear to me that knowing about Aristotle and Plato and Locke and Berkeley equips you particularly to solve those problems. I think that right. You, what you what you need to be is a is a clear thinker. Mm. But yes, that's philosophy. On this question he raises of universal basic income, this is something I think of a lot, and I spoke actually last week I was talking to Peter Frankopan about this same question. We talk about, oh, the robots are going to take our jobs, the robots are going to take our jobs, and that, that's presuming that the best and the natural state and the state that we want for humanity is that we should all have a job such as working at a cash register somewhere as opposed to there being some sort of, as you say, intelligent design of society where we say, okay, wait a minute, like, we've got all this abundance, we've got these machines that can sweep the floor and whatnot, you know, so presumably that generates some additional abundance that, you know, is there some way of yes. more equitably distributing mm. it or... What, what people need is not jobs, but the income you get from jobs. Right, right, right. right. <laughs> right. So if, if Nobody you, if needs can, to be a cashier. Can, like, if know. they can have the income without, and especially if, if as, as he says, pay, pay them to be good people and, and to be good musicians and good philosophers and good writers and good poets and things. Wonderful. Yeah, yeah. I should, I mean, it, you know, it's, I guess it's a question of whether humanity would be able to transcend the, like in a, in a really different kind of sense, the selfishness which is a separate genes. question, yes. Yeah. Okay. So we, we want to draw a line under that one and go on to the well, next Well, uh, ju just, just to say that selfish genes never did mean selfish individuals. Right, right. I mean, it's the the, the, my book, The Selfish Gene, is largely about the altruistic individual, as a matter of fact. Right. Uh, actually, for those who aren't familiar with that, maybe we can briefly unpack that a little bit. Like, in what sense? Well, uh, natural selection is about the differential survival of entities of one sort versus entities, ri rival entities of the same sort. Right. And the entities concerned are genes. Right. So the genes that survive are the ones that take steps to make themselves survive, which means that they're selfish at the gene level. Right. But one of the things they do in order to survive is to make individuals the opposite of selfish. To some extent they make individuals selfish, but that's not part of it. That's not an essential part of it. Right. They make they often make individuals altruistic, cooperative. Right, especially within family and community. Yes. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. 
but the question is whether we as a species are capable of, and whether we're heading, we might be heading in the direction of that at some kind of global level yes, and, and as the world globalizes yeah, more. That's where know. the intelligent design comes in. And uh, Peter Singer, the great moral philosopher, yes. wrote a book called The Expanding Circle in which he talked about the biological, a sort of selfish genes leading to altruistic individuals, relatives, and then widening the circle to non-relatives, etc., which you can, it doesn't follow from Darwinism. Right. And we are sort of seeing these spasms of, like, nationalism and self-protection that are happening geopolitically right yes. now. I mean, in both England yes. and, or the UK and the US, uh, certainly in, Tur in my wife's native Turkey as well. Yes. Um, do you have a sense overall, or do you have uh, any beliefs as to whether we are heading toward that kind of more global consciousness well, I, I, in the I think Singarian I, sense? Or? Yes, I mean, I, I, I quoted Stephen Pinker's Better Angels of Our yes. Nature and, and Michael Shermer's book on the moral arc, which is, makes the same kind of idea. I mean, w we are getting better over the centuries right. and over the decades even right, right, right. Uh, with, with a sort of snaggly sawtooth pattern. It's not, a, it's not a smooth curve moral arc. So y y yes, I mean, if I look into the distant future, if we don't kill ourselves, <laughs> right. then I, I would think we are heading in the, in the right direction. Mm. Um, but we are going to have to overcome such selfishness as there is in us. You mentioned nationalism, you mentioned xenophobia, which I think was part of the motivation for both the Brexit vote and the Trump vote. Nationalism, I, I, I'm sort of known for saying that religion is an, is an evil. I think nationalism is, an, is another evil. If you look at the great wars of the 20th century, the First World War, Second World War, right. these were wars of patriotic nationalism, not yes. really religion. It is a great evil, the, the idea that your country, my country, is somehow superior to all to all others right. um, is a motivating force. You saw it in the First World War very, very strongly. Yeah, um, I mean, if we were to evolve beyond that in any meaningful sense, I mean, socially evolve, um, I can't imagine what, what sort of the map of the world then looks like. You know, no, it's like, difficult, isn't it? <laughs> uh, if, if, again, if you go back in, back in history like Stephen Pinker does, you come to tribal warfare, you look at the right. highlands of New Guinea where, where if, if you meet somebody who belongs to the wrong tribe, you just kill them. Right. Um, a very, very substantial number of male deaths are due to homicide. And so we've improved hugely there. We are moving in the right direction. Right. And we are less jingoistically patriotic than our grandfathers That's were true. in the time of the First World War. But it's still there, and it shows itself in the Brexit vote, it's sort of nostalgia for empire and, and the flag of the Union Jack and so on, and America first. Yeah. If you say, why, why America first? What's so great about America? You know, why, why, why not the world first? Why not California right. first? Right, or indeed, why not a set of principles first? Better you know? still, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Great. I think we have time for one more. Okay. And so let me, let, me, um, let me go to that. Eric Weinstein, or Weinstein, I'm not sure how to say it. He's a uh, mathematician and an economist. If you're thinking rationally, you're not thinking hard enough. Well, let's see. We have to embrace the inconsistency of our own minds, not as a bug, but as a feature, that we are, in essence, brought here by the forces of selection. We are 
the products of systems of selective pressures. And what they seem to do is to create the ability to run many, many different programs, and often contradictory programs, within the same mind. And the question is, why have we put such an extraordinary emphasis on intellectual consistency um, so that we are constantly alerted to the hypocrisy of others, but we are seemingly blind to it in ourselves? Our mind is constructed with an architecture that allows us to run various sandboxes where we can experiment with the ideas of others without actually becoming the other. Can we run another mind in emulation, perhaps not as well as its original owner, but can we run that mind well enough to understand it, to empathize with it, and to argue and spar with it to achieve some kind of better outcome where we are actually able to turn foes into dancing partners as we come to show that we've actually understood perspectives different from our own. The biggest objection to this way of thinking is, is that it's somehow a kind of a cheat, that hypocrisy is being uh, summoned by another name. But I think this is actually incorrect. I think that we have these sandboxes, for example, so that we can fight more effectively uh, a foe that we feel we must defeat. So for example, recently uh, I talked about the importance of being able to run a jihadi sandbox in our minds if we want to understand the forces that are behind Islamic terror and its effect uh, on what I think are relatively fragile uh, Western sensibilities about life and death. And so if we, if we choose not to empathize with the other, to say that so much is beyond the pale, we are probably not going to be very effective in understanding that the other does not see itself as evil, it does not see itself as an enemy that must be fought. Uh, I don't necessarily need to agree with it, but to demonstrate that I can't even run the program simply for the purpose of social signaling seems the height of folly. How do we hope to become effective if we can't guess what the other will do next? That is fascinating. I, mean, I have very frequently myself said that the jihadi terrorists don't think they're evil. They think they're righteous. They think they're doing a good thing. They think they're good. They think they're doing, doing the will of Allah. Right. They think they're going to paradise. And, and um, so we have to understand that. Sam Harris has made the point often enough. Um, yeah. These people really believe what they say they believe. They believe they're doing good. And we won't understand them if we simply say they're horrible, rotten, evil, evil people. We have to get inside their minds. Yeah. Um, that doesn't mean we have to be irrational. Right. Uh, we have to say, no, that is irrational. But nevertheless, I, I know where you're coming from. I, given the, the premise that you have right. been brought up from childhood to believe this, I can see why you think that it's the right thing to do to kill infidels and throw gay people off buildings and things, because that's what it says in your, in your holy book. At a more philosophical level, uh, what he said is somewhat similar to what my Cambridge colleague Nicholas Humphrey said okay. in his trying to understand consciousness. He thinks, Humphrey thinks that consciousness is what he calls the inner eye, where in order to understand other people, in order to empathize other people, you need to look inside your own head. Okay. And so that is why, that's where self-awareness comes from. Um, that's a bit of a red herring. I mean, I, I, I want to agree with what Weinstein has just said. Mm. Um, 
w without going so far as to say we need to be irrational. We don't, we must not be irrational, but we need to empathize with and understand right. where the irrationality comes from in other people. What is that great line, um, which I, I've seen variously attributed, but I think Arthur Salzberger, Jr. of the New York Times, we should keep an open mind, but not so open that our brains yes, fall out. Yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> Someone is attributed to me, by the way, oh, which, yeah. which, is, which is not true. <laughs> okay, all right. Yes, you actually bring it up in the book, yeah, I recall. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I, I would be curious, like in your various travels, because you've gone touring into the Bible Belt states yes. on book tours and so on, and no doubt debated with religious believers on, on these topics. What has anyone ever surprised you, like, and, or have you, have you found yourself encountering sort of an understanding from the inside that, that surprised you? I've never come across an argument a re, a, from a religious person that I found remotely persuasive. <laughs> okay. But that's different from the question, an insight into the way they think. Sure. And surely, I mean, y yes, as I said, I've often said and just, just repeated just recently, just, just, just now with you. We have to get into the minds of people, even, even people who do horrific things like um, jihadi terrorists. But, but if you're asking me, have I ever in, in an, an argument with a religious person has heard an argument that say, oh yes, I know that sounds like a good argument. No, I never have. <laughs> right, 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 right. Well, conversely, in discussion or debate with religious folks, have you ever found arguments from reason to, has, have they ever convinced the other side? Like, have you, have you ever found yourself in a situation where somebody said, oh, wait a minute, like, this sort of dismantles some, you know, fundamental feature here, or? What I have is a large number of letters mm. which are collected together on richarddawkins.net in what we call Convert's Corner. Okay. Uh, from people who say they have been persuaded by my books, by The God Delusion, for example, and right. I hope from this one, Science in the Soul. Um, yes, I mean, I, I don't think I've ever actually had a face-to-face -face argument with somebody where, where they've said, ah, oh, okay. Um, <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> uh, because then they would lose face, possibly. Well, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, that, that may not be quite right. Uh, but, um, but certainly, very large numbers of people on, on, which you can look up in Convert's Corner. Do you see that that aspect of your work, you know, the, the sort of public education aspect and the work that the, you know, of your books and of the Richard Dawkins Foundation as, I don't know, a kind of evangelism? I mean, do you feel yourself on a mission, in a sense, to change the way that, that people think? I feel myself on a mission. I don't think, I mean, the, the, the word evangelism know it's in its literal like sense is, is okay, but it d does tend to be associated with fundamentalism, right. which tends to mean coming from a holy book. And of course, we don't have holy books in science. We, sure. we, we, have, we have evidence. But I, I do feel evangelical in the sense that I really, really want to persuade people to think logically and mm. be persuaded by, by evidence. Really, mainly because it's so beautiful. I mean, really because the, the scientific understanding of the world actually is beautiful. It's a, it's a wonderful thing when you think about right. it that here we are on this planet, this obscure planet of orbiting an obscure sun and, a, and in one arm of a spiral galaxy that, that we have evolved over four billion years, the capacity to understand where we came from, what the universe is, how old it is, how big it is, where it's going. It's an amazing thing that our brain can do that. And you and I and everybody who's listening 
have a brain that's capable of doing that. We live in the 21st century when we do stand on the shoulders of giants who have told us the, these things. Not to know that, to bury your head in the sand, not to, to be curious right. to know what is known is a terrible thing. And it's particularly terrible when children are deprived of the opportunity by obscurantist book learning from books, which I saw a rather good joke the other day. The Bible was labeled the goat herder's guide to the universe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think there are also many people who find themselves sort of, I think this is a false logic. They, they find certain notions of beauty and meaning that they prize threatened by science. Yes. Now, I mean, clearly a, a religious understanding of the universe is, is threatened by a scientific understanding, but poetry yeah. or, you know, those no, things. No, it's, it's, you're those are quite right, things. and I, yeah. I even wrote a book called Unweaving the Rainbow, yeah. which about that very topic, and it, the, the title comes from Keats, who sort of more or less attacked Newton for spoiling the poetry of the rainbow by explaining it. Uh. And the whole point of the book was, in various ways, that the rainbow becomes more beautiful, not less, when you understand about light and spectrum and how right. light of different wavelengths is, is bent into different angles and so on. And the whole book is really about the poetry of science and the fact that science is not an enemy of poetry, but its friend. Right, you say several places in the book that it's a, a shame that no scientists, I guess, have won the Nobel Prize for Literature? Well, that? that's right. I, I mean, the, the one possible exception is Henri Bergson. Okay. And that's an appalling exception. Because <laughs> he, he was a frank mystic. I mean, he, he believed that life was, was, was driven by something which he called élan vital, right. um, the right. life force. Um, and Julian Huxley satirized it. I quoted this in the book as, as imagining that a train is driven by élan locomotif. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Doesn't explain anything. So no real scientist has ever won the Nobel Prize for literature. Yeah. And I think that literature is a great vehicle, sorry, that science is a great vehicle for literature, beautiful, poetic literature. Yeah. Sorry. Carl Sagan is dead, but Carl Sagan should have won the Nobel Prize for literature. Yeah, Keats was a wonderful poet, and so was Blake, and so was Dickens in his way, but I think they were all sort of wrong in, in, si yes, in falling on yes, that side of w things. Wordsworth was a bit different, um, <laughs> and, and Wordsworth actually had an argument yeah. with the other romantic poets about this. Oh, really? Yeah. It, well, it's in Unweaving the Rainbow. Oh, okay. <laughs> Excellent. Richard Dawkins, thank you so much for your time. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thanks for coming on Think Again. In a great pleasure. Thank you very much. So that's it for this week's episode of Think Again. Um, I'm going to go on a much-needed vacation for the next two weeks, uh, but in my absence, I have prepared a treat for you, which is two mixtapes of what I think are some of the best, deepest, funniest, wisest, most interesting little moments from the past year of the show. So I hope that you'll tune in for Mixtape 1 and 2 of 2017. Also, if you haven't had a chance to yet, and if you'd like to come and uh, talk with us about ideas, please join our Facebook group. It's called Friends of Think Again, a Big Think podcast, and it's growing really rapidly, and the conversations on there are great. So if you're on Facebook and you want to talk about big ideas, come talk with us. <laughs> <laughs>